Heavenly Father, now as we read and hear your word opened to us, we ask, O Lord, your spirit would be present with us to illumine our hearts that we might see it, that we might rejoice in it. And, O Lord, make your spirit take that word and plow our hearts with it. Turn over the dead soil, freshen up the new, and, O Lord, may we bear fruit to your glory. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The text for our message this morning will be Galatians chapter 6, beginning at verse 11. Galatians chapter 6, beginning at verse 11, and you'll find that on page 975 of the Pew Bible. Galatians 6, 11 through 18. While you're finding that, again, it's my joy to be with you. I've been visiting you on and off for many years, and it's always a delight to come back to see old faces and to see new faces as well, Uh, to see those who, above all, love the Lord Jesus Christ, who have found him to be entirely satisfactory, and who delight in honoring and serving him in those few short days that our Lord gives to us. Galatians chapter 6. This is the end of Paul's letter to the saints in Galatia. This is the word of God. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Amen. Our text this morning is a conclusion of a letter that the veteran missionary apostle wrote to the churches in Galatia, which today are part of the modern nation of Turkey. And even a casual reading of this letter, as I'm sure many of you have been through it many different times, might cause you to conclude that the missionary life, at least this missionary's life, was not an easy one. The Apostle Paul was more or less under continual assault from both those ostensibly within the church as well as those outside. But in the eyes of this missionary... The personal assault to him paled in comparison in significance with the assault that was taking place on the gospel of Jesus Christ itself that was seemed to be under full steam in the churches in Galatia, as he writes. So we'll look at this text in three very simple points this morning. Number one, the fundamental duty of the church in sending missionaries is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That one's kind of a no-brainer, but it's always good to have those reminded again. Number two, 
By virtue of our union with Christ, those who faithfully preach the gospel can expect to suffer unjustly at the hands of the powers of this world. And number three, in the preaching of the gospel, we come to see most clearly that our only boast is in the glorious cross of Jesus Christ. Our ultimate end, whatever we do, is the glory of God, that he might receive all the praise for who he is and what he has done, and what he's continuing to do, even now, in time, and will do in all eternity. Our immediate aim in preaching the gospel, of course, is the gathering and building up of the church of Jesus Christ, a people who, for his own glory, God has determined to save the bride of Christ, for whom he gave his life, his church. Very simply, what do we do in missions? The fundamental duty of the church in sending missionaries is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. No gimmicks, no altar calls, just very simply opening up the gospel of Jesus Christ, explaining again and again for some the first time what it is that Christ has accomplished and who he is and why he did it. If you ever have a chance to visit a mission field, those are wonderful times. I can still remember in the early days and our works in many different places where the preaching goes long, the crowds are large, and the Holy Spirit is working. Sometimes you even think, have I stepped back into the book of Acts? As people come up and tug and ask you, what must I do to be saved? And what do you say? What would you say today if your coworker came up to you and just said, out of the blue, I, you know, I know you're a Christian. At least I hope he does. What must I do to be saved? What would you say? Well, of course, you're going to share with him the basics of the gospel. We are sinners. We have no hope apart from Christ. God sent Christ to die in our place for our sin, that we, by faith, faith alone in him, by his grace, might be saved. That we need to repent of our sin, instead of delighting in our sin and playing with it and having fun with it, it actually needs to disgust us. And we need to turn from it and flee in faith to Jesus Christ, knowing he will never, ever turn us away. But then what else do you say to your friend? after opening up the simple gospel. Well, you send to him, tell him, come with me. We'll sit under the preaching of God's word. Let us learn to grow in grace. That's why you invite your friends to worship, that they might be under the preaching of God's word. And every week, as pastor faithfully opens God's word, the Holy Spirit is using that for his own glory. They need to come and receive instruction that they might understand what's in God's word, that they might grow in grace. They might understand what it is that God requires of us by way of godly response to what he has done in his word, that they may be fed good spiritual food. They may be safeguarded from wolves that are running around all over the place. And they may grow in grace as they sit under the preaching of the word.
You know, in the back of your Trinity hymnal is Larger Catechism 155. You might look at that this afternoon. But very simply, it says that in describing of the missionary enterprise, our catechism says that God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of, and it lists a whole bunch of stuff. But there's that word in there that I don't want us to blow past. Effectual. What, what does that mean? Well, our, you know, our ears say that kind of sounds like effective, and that's kind of the gist. But since it's the Spirit doing it, it's the Spirit who carries with it the power to make it effective. It's this powerful effectiveness in the preaching of the Word. For what's it used for? Well, here we are in the catech- larger catechism, 155, enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners. Pretty simple stuff but it goes right to the core of what we're doing in our enterprise. Of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ. Of conforming them to his image and subduing them to his will. Of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions. Of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. That's what the Holy Spirit does in the preaching of his word. That's what he's doing among you. Every Lord's Day, pastor opens up the word. One of the beauties of the Reformed faith is we believe the preaching of the word is effectual. The missionary preacher is therefore a messenger, the messenger, one who proclaims the message. And whose message does he proclaim? King Jesus. That's whose message it is. The messenger, missionary is that messenger of King Jesus. He calls in the name, comes in the name of King Jesus and calls the whole world to repentance for forgiveness of his sins in the name of the Lamb of God. Over in Romans 10, we have an Old Testament promise and the application of that promise to the New Testament church. Now, have you ever noticed that pattern in Scripture? Where there's a promise, there's an application. Well, the promise, look at Romans 10, beginning at verse 13. Here we have a promise from the prophet Joel. I mean, one of the minor prophets way back in the Old Testament, right? And yet, he's looking forward. He already sees the day of Christ in the Word. Here's the promise, verse 13 of Romans 10. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Does the magnitude of that promise hit you yet? Whoever. Even sinner me. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord in faith will be saved. Now, what's one of the applications that the Apostle Paul will use in a letter to the Romans? To the church. There are many, but here's one he's going to develop to the church. Starts out with four rhetorical, well, it's four rhetorical questions. Number one, verse 14. How can they call upon him in whom they have not believed? Well, the calling in view in the promise is a call based upon faith. I believe that when I call upon Christ, he is willing and able to answer 
and to meet what I'm calling upon him to do. You must believe in the Lord before you're able to call on him with the requisite faith that he is indeed able to perform. Promise application point number two. And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? You must hear of someone and know him before you believe him. It's just very simple. And you begin to see the noose already tightening when the application comes. Number three, here we go. And how shall they hear without a preacher? See, to acquire the requisite knowledge that leads to saving faith, you must hear the gospel as it is proclaimed by the king's messenger. And now number four, he drives the point home to us today in his church, as he has for the last 2,000 years, and how shall they preach unless they are sent? Nations will not hear the gospel unless the church sends preachers to them. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. Now let's look at the particulars of the situation in Galatia that Paul is addressing in his letter. What is the key to the troubles underlying the situation here the churches in Galatia. Well, if you look at the opening letter, we just read it at the, earlier in the service, you'll see messengers have come preaching a different message. Verse 6. I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. So important is the preaching of the true gospel That's the key preaching. That's the underlying presupposition of this whole passage. The preaching. What is it we're going to preach? That the apostle is going to invoke the strongest possible condemnation in all of scripture on those who would corrupt it. This this is about as heavy as anything we'll ever get in scripture. Verse 8. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, Let him be accursed. Verse 9. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel different, contrary to what you have received, let him be accursed. And it's in this corruption of the gospel that the enemy has turned the battle into personal and an hominem attack upon the king's real messenger. That's the controversy at play here. The false gospel has come. Accusations are then made against the true messenger. Number one, the fundamental duty of the church in sending missionaries is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what drives everything else. Number two, okay? By virtue of our union with Christ, those who do faithfully preach the gospel can expect to suffer unjustly, it ain't right, at the the hands of the powers of this world. Ask any faithful pastor, is it easy to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ faithfully? 
And on one level, he will say, yes, the message is simple and clear. On another level, he says, this is very difficult. It is not easy to faithfully preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the king's message is itself offensive to the ears of this world. Wait a minute. Isn't the gospel about forgiveness and joy and eternal life and delighting in Christ and no more sin, no more death, no more pain, no more sickness? Isn't it about all of that? And, and yeah. So wherein lies the heart of the offense of the gospel? The heart of the offense of the gospel lies in telling people they cannot save themselves. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can say. There's no good work you can perform. There's no righteous life you can live. There's no sacrifice you can make, even giving up your own life in a very worthy cause that can earn you one drop of saving merit when you stand in your sin before the judge on judgment day. Absolutely nothing you can do or say. The world around us likes to say, that's nice, but there are many paths to God. You take yours, I'll take mine. I live a good life. Um, you know, assuming there is a heaven and all of that, uh, on that judgment day, God's going to do one of these things, right? Right? And he's going to say, well, you did some bad stuff, but you did a whole lot of better stuff. And, you know, I, at the end of the day, sure, come on in. It may not be a front row seat in heaven, but I can get one in the back row. That's the message of the world. And brothers and sisters, if you think that's how it's going to be, you have just swallowed the big one. That's the Megillah of all lies. That's what Satan loves for you to think is what is ahead of us. How strange that message seems then, doesn't it? To tell people, you're not good enough to be saved. In fact, you don't even deserve to be saved. If you're really honest, I know I did. I don't know anybody here who did. What we deserve in all righteousness and justice is God's eternal punishment. But brothers and sisters, you know, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that no one who does indeed come to Christ has ever been or ever will be turned away. So if somehow you're still clinging in that vain hope that you might be somebody who could actually pull it off just by what you've done, all that good stuff, give it up. Give it all up. 
It's stinking garbage. And flee in face to Christ. He will not turn you away. But back in Galatia, the false messengers, the cost is too steep. See, oh, you can go through these religious ceremonies and that's going to be good enough. You know, you don't really have to worry about your heart. You know, you, you, for them it was circumcision. It's just follow, following the externalities. They sold out. Verse 12. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised. Why? Why are they so eager to have all these other good works people with them? Simply that they may not be persecuted. The community feels more comfortable that you be circumcised. Well, you know, what's a little accommodation among friends? You'll always be pressured to shave the sharp edges off of the gospel. That man is saved by grace and grace alone to make it more acceptable. But the true messenger of the king is not seduced by the enticement of an easy life. Earlier in this book, chapter 2, verse 5, Paul writes, but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. And it cost him. Paul writes in our text in verse 17 of chapter 6. For I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. They marked him as belonging to Christ. Those things we suffer, the world looks at them as shameful, as revolting, we look at them and saying, I belong to Jesus. I've been marked. So Paul writes young Timothy, his friend. In 2 Timothy, he writes, Therefore do not be ashamed at the testimony of our Lord or of me, or his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And again, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And again, and indeed, all who desire to live in Christ, godly in Christ will be persecuted. To the believers over in Philippi, Paul would write, same theme, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And finally, Peter would also write to the same saints here in Galatia. He writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
One of my favorite missionary stories, by the way, if you're looking for a great missionary biography, the autobiography of John Payton, it's number one on my list. And I got a long list. But I highly recommend it. I think Banner of Truth puts it out. And it, I can't say it's a must-read, but it's close to the must-read as you're ever going to get on something like this. But he talks about how he first entered the call to be a missionary. He was all set up to have one of the most prestigious pulpits in all of Scotland. And one day, someone comes and says, there are these islands out in the South Pacific that are desperate for the gospel. And he thought, well, I'm already established. Someone else would go. But no one would go. And finally, the Lord laid it on his heart and he said, I have to go. Now, there was an old man in his congregation. And, you know, he's like, man, I finally got the pastor of my dreams. This is the pastor who's going to bury me. Okay? I'm really looking forward to this. And suddenly he comes with this harebrained idea of going off to tell some savages in the South Pacific, as he would view them, about Jesus Christ. And here's the encounter. He goes up after the service to rebuke John Patton. And here's the dialogue. He says, The cannibals. The cannibals. You will be eaten by cannibals. To which the young missionary-to-be responded very gently. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. For in that great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. That's the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember years ago attending a conference of mission agencies that were looking to do a work in a very dangerous country. Very dangerous. And it was like a two-day conference, and we had a whole hour and a half presentation just on the security concerns of laboring in this country. And about 45 minutes into the talk, one of the, participants, one of the people just at attending the conference like me couldn't take it anymore. And he stood up and he says... But how can you live like that? And the speaker smiled and said, Well, you know, Mongolia is not so bad a place to go to heaven from. And that's how we have to live our lives. Increasingly in our own culture, as we see coming around us, more and more of what we believe is ridiculed. And it won't be too long before any pastor who faithfully preaches the word of God is going to be accused of hate speech. We pray it doesn't come there. But we need to prepare ourselves for the day. I remember years ago, the brother's now in heaven. He was a shepherd in the highlands of Eritrea. He went to prison many times for sharing the gospel with the young men in his village. 
And an interesting thing would happen in Eritrea. Again, you see the marvel of God always working. God is actively at work supernaturally each and every day of our lives. On the way into prison, often it seems, pardon the mixed metaphor, the Lord would blind the fingers of the guards as they're patting down the prisoners, and they would end up in their cells with Bibles in their pockets. Some of the sweetest time I've ever talked to anybody about as they describe their time in prison with other Christians. But I asked him this time, you know, did this particular event we were discussing, did you have a Bible in your pocket? And he he'd stored up vast portions of scripture in his mind against the day of going to prison. I'm convicted. I need to do a much better job of storing up God's word in my heart. Maybe you will have a Bible in your jail cell. Maybe you won't. Are you ready? Missionary Bruce Hunt, who was imprisoned for preaching the gospel in Manchuria, found special comfort in the words in Matthew 10:22. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. When he was in prison, the authorities tried to break him. Psychological, physical, you name it. He almost starved to death. But he was in China, a shame culture. And so one of the things that they would do would be to humiliate them, prisoners. They would actually dress them in convict uniform, lice-ridden, filthy rags, press garbage baskets. Okay? These are used garbage baskets, where back in the 40s, that's where everything went, 30s rather. So press those over their heads and then parade them through the town in shame to try to break their spirits. And Bruce talked about this one occasion where the Christians in that particular town who were not yet in prison decided to encourage the prisoners. And so on parade day, they lined up on both sides of the road. And as the guards are standing there with their hands on machine guns, as the prisoners were marched by, the Christians in the audience would chant, Gutgaji, to the end to the end, to the end, that the prisoners might stay faithful. For many of them, the end was in prison, it was death. That's where they died. But they would not deny Jesus Christ. It pleased God to deliver Bruce Hunt, and he would go on and have decades more of fruitful ministry. But I still remember my Eritrean friend, we found him. His village had been half-bombed out. We took him out for some tea in the other half of the village. And near the end of the conversation, as we're talking about his time in prison, he looks at me, and I will never forget these words. He looks and he says, And you know, prison is a wonderful place to share the gospel with unbelievers. And it was like that wave just sweeps over you. You go... I'm not worthy to be in the same room with a man like this. This is a real soldier of Jesus Christ. 
But remember his counsel and wisdom. When you end up in prison, remember prison is a great place to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that has been the experience of many of our saints in Eritrea who have gone to prison. We have 14 brothers right now in prison in Eritrea. They've been there since January of 2020. One has already died. They will not deny Christ. That's their ticket out. All you have to do is sign the piece of paper denying Christ and you're out. Prison is a wonderful place to share the gospel. The chronicler of the history of our Lord's apostles records in what to us has to be one of the most challenging sentences in all of Scripture, says that after they were flogged for their tenacious insistence on their continuing to preach the gospel of Christ, he writes, and they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. God's people do indeed recognize the voice of their Savior in the voice of his servant, the true preacher of the gospel. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Earlier in this letter to the Galatians, Paul writes again in chapter 4, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time, and that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Or do you tend to grumble and complain when even the little and insignificant things do not work out the way you wanted them to? Are you ready to die for Jesus? Don't show hands. Are you ready today to die for Jesus? And if not, why not? What is it that I'm holding on to so tightly that I can't give it up for Christ? And brother or sister, whenever you figure out what that thing is you're holding on to so tightly is, you've just found your own idol. Your own personal idol. Real freedom comes only from actively putting all things into the hands of our Savior and being content in whatever situation he, according to his sovereign will, places us. See? For I bear in my body the brand marks of Jesus. They're not shame anymore. They mark those who have been faithful. On the tombstone of one of our missionaries to Eritrea in the first round, 1974, tombstone of Miss Anna Strickwater, a missionary nurse martyred for Christ in Ginda, Eritrea, some 48 years ago, are the words from Revelation 2.10. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. Our Lord said, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it. 
And he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. And that brings us then to our final point. But again, we can expect, if we're faithful, to suffer. Third, in the preaching of the gospel, we come to see most clearly that our only boast is in the glorious cross of Jesus Christ. It's all Christ. We are a new creation. Circumcision, uncircumcision, that stuff doesn't matter. We are a new creation in Christ. The word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And this is where we always end up. We end up back at the foot of the cross. We never be able to escape the wonder of it all. How is it that the Son of God, the very Son of God, would, as was written to the saints in Philippi, humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross? That he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Brothers and sisters, we did not deserve this. And it's precisely at the cross that we see God's perfect wisdom, power, goodness, holiness, justice, and truth all come together at the cross. And it's enough. It's more than enough for a whole lifetime. So the missionary apostle, even with all of his accomplishments in the service of the king, concludes, but may it never be that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Brothers and sisters, what is it that you glory in? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be in your spirit, brethren. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again we are reminded of your surpassing love, the glory of your marvelous plan of salvation, the wonders of Jesus Christ. Lord, our minds are boggled. Our sin disgusts us, O Lord. Help us to flee from it each day. Help us to loosen our grasp on the things of this world and to tighten them to Christ. Lord, help us to restrain ourselves while we flee to Christ. And Lord, help us to grow in grace each day. Help us to delight in the preaching of your word. Help us to delight in sharing this good news with our friends around us. Give us a boldness. Lord, help us not to fear what the repercussions might be, but rather help us to glory in Jesus Christ. And oh Lord, in all of these things, it's not about us. It's about you. And what you have done, what you continue to do, and what you will do now and throughout eternity. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.